This world can be a very confusing place, especially as pertaining to moral standards and religious beliefs. When people take time to think about it, and I think at some point along the way most people do, they wonder if God exists, and if he does, what kind of a God is he, he, and uh, has he made himself known? They wonder, is there anything, such thing as truth, and if something is true, what is that truth? Perhaps they wonder, how am I to live? And what happens when I die? All these questions are more and more are answered in, in the Bible. And the confusion and uncertainties of life are basically resolved if we believe the gospel, if we understand what the gospel is and accept it and believe it. Galatians is about the gospel. The Apostle Paul begins Galatians by making some really uh, hard statements that our culture would not agree with at all. He says that uh, there is only one gospel, there's only one true faith, there's only one way to go to heaven. And he said, if anybody comes along and proclaims another gospel, let him be anathema, which means cursed, which means destined for destruction. Uh, That does not uh, play well in our modern culture. Even in a lot of churches, it doesn't play well. But that's what the Bible teaches. And this is not our teaching of our denomination or my teaching or Pastor Dan's teaching. It is what the Bible says. So there's not a new and improved gospel. There's no need to adjust or alter the gospel to suit the situations that modern man faces. There's a similarity in Galatians 1 and uh, verse 1 and Galatians 1 verse 12. In 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So in verse 1, Paul defends his apostleship. I'm called by God. In verse 12, 11, 12, he defends the gospel. It was given to me by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now why is Paul defensive? Usually if a person is defensive, uh, it's because uh, they're protecting themselves. They're attempting to justify themselves in some way. Well, the reason Paul is defensive of his apostleship and of his message is because of verse 7. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The Galatian churches, four or five of them, had been founded by the apostle Paul, and now some false teachers are coming in and teaching a different gospel. And to make their version of the gospel credible, they have to discredit the Apostle Paul and his message. And that's precisely what they're attempting to do. Trying their best to uh, put Paul in a bad light so that people would reject him and therefore reject the gospel that he preached. 
Well, who were these people and what were they saying? We call them Judaizers. They were people who were introducing the law of Moses in addition to the gospel. We know this is the case because of chapter 4 and uh, verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, they were still practicing the, uh, the feast days and special days of the law of Moses. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's in the past. That's all over. You don't have to do that. Then in chapter 5, verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you think you need to follow the, Jew, the Jewish practice of, of circumcising males, then you're back in the law game. You don't have to do that anymore. But the false teachers say, no, no, you need Jesus. But it's Jesus plus. Plus circumcision. Plus the special days. Plus all the other aspects of Judaism. Uh, it could have been that these false teachers came from Jerusalem and uh, that's where James was, uh, the Lord's brother, and Peter and John. It could be that they were saying to the Galatians, you know what, we have the endorsement from the heavyweights, from the big shots, from Peter, from James, from John. They were name droppers, in other words. And in their eyes, Paul was a Johnny-come-lately to the apostolic band. Remember, he was Saul of Tarsus, an unbeliever during the earthly ministry of Christ, and for several years um, afterward. He had been a vigorous and vicious opponent of Jesus and the gospel. Then he had a dramatic encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. But the false teachers are saying, why should anybody listen to Paul? His apostleship is not valid, nor is his message. So they were on an all-out mission to destroy his credibility. Paul claims to be an apostle. Well, he's not. He claims to preach the gospel. Hey, we have an improved version of the gospel. Paul's gospel is seriously flawed. Having this background helps us to understand why Paul is rigorously defending his calling and his message. Paul does not hesitate to say, my apostolic calling is from God. If you look in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. So God called me to be an apostle. And my message is not my invention. It's a revelation given to me by Jesus Christ. Look at verse, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That's the title of the message, God's gospel, not man's. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the great distinction between true Christianity and all other religions and all other distortions of the gospel. There are a lot, there are a lot of belief systems out there that vie 
for our attention and allegiance. But any belief system that is contradicting the gospel is not true. It was made up by man. It's man's invention. It's man's adjustment and alteration of the gospel. The Christian gospel is totally different. It was given by revelation of God. And what of its relevance? Well, God's gospel redeems sinners. Paul points this out in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. No other gospel saves us from sin. A person might accept an, an alternative gospel that is preached in some churches. There may be some uh, temporary improvements in their lifestyle as a result, but there's no eternal value. There's only one gospel that delivers sinners from the wrath of God. God's gospel honors God. Human inventions, when it comes to religious beliefs, are designed to honor man, to exalt man. But the one true gospel stresses grace. Salvation is all of God from start to finish. This is why God saves us the way he does, so that he gets all the glory. Look in Chapter 1, verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever, all men. If you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, that statement, God's glory, occurs many, many times. God's gospel changes people. It brings life where there was death. It delivers people from spiritual and moral darkness and transports them into the glorious light of Jesus and the gospel. It empowers people to forsake sin and live righteously. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our Western, our Western world is crumbling because it has moved away from the foundation and the moorings of the Christian gospel. Family breaks up, breakups all have their root cause in sinful attitudes and behaviors that destroy relationships. We use the term, or the psychological term as well, it's a dysfunctional family. It's dysfunctional because it's sinful. If you deal with the sin, then the family will function the way it should. Alcohol... And drug addictions are on the rise because people can't cope with life. There's no self-control. They have no purpose beyond the pleasure of the moment. No place for God and his truth. Individuals and nations are struggling under immense debt, nationally and personally, because they ignore biblical principles of money and finances. Immorality is rampant because the moral laws of God are said to be antiquated, unrealistic, and have no validity for modern man. And the list goes on and on. Our culture, our world tries to come up, well, let's try this, let's try that, let's throw more money at it. 
Let's try this theory of human behavior. The human solutions are no solutions. The solution is to accept without modification or compromise the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed by that gospel. In our churches, this is the gospel we must preach. And in our personal lives, this is the gospel we must be committed to and put into practice. Then we learn that there's a difference between the gospel and religion. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions, notice the traditions of my father. Paul's focus was the Jesus-only gospel, not the Jesus-plus gospel, not the Jesus-and-tradition gospel that the Judaizers had brought into the church. In all religions invented by man, the, the, the concept of I and self is the predominant. How I can please God. What I can achieve by my own efforts how I merit heaven because of what I have done. The religion of man, whatever form it takes, is all about human worth and achievement. In contrast, the gospel is all about Christ, what he has done for us. Let's look more closely at the gospel of I. In the religion of I, it becomes a way of life based on rules a list of do's and don'ts invented by man. And man looks at his list, his moral code, and begins to check off things whereby, whereby he thinks he's doing well in certain areas and maybe not doing so well in other areas, so he keeps working on his list. And of course, when he achieves what he believes to be a success in terms of his moral code, he's proud of himself, feels good about himself, that's how Paul lived as a Pharisee. And, of course, people who live this way assume that if there is a God, he must be impressed also. The religion of I never changes the heart. It might change external conduct, but not the heart. The religion of I is not about the redemption of the soul. It's about codes and creeds and rules. And of course, when we look at that person who lives by this, this way, there may be a lot to, to, um, to admire. Many of them live morally upright lives. Many of them faithfully attend church. They're concerned about the welfare of society, involved in humanitarian causes, all that's good. But it has no saving value, none. God is not impressed with the religion of rules because he does not receive the glory. And the reason is because in the thinking of these kinds of people, there is no deep sense of sin or alienation from God. They have not put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. 
they assess themselves as fundamentally good living people. And when you assess yourself that way, the cross is not all that important. In fact, it's completely um, irrelevant. Any thoughts of human corruption, human depravity, or inability is dismissed from the minds of those who live by the religion of I. Deeply religious people who don't know Jesus set out on a course of works salvation. And therefore, they minimize the grace of God. The religion of I is often opposed to the truth. The Apostle Paul said that he was a vigorous opponent of Christ and the church. As a zealous Pharisee, he hated Jesus. He hated Christians. And surveying the situation in the world today, what group of people are often on the receiving end of persecution? Christians. Especially those that are deeply and openly committed to Christ. Next Sunday is a day of prayer for the persecuted church. We don't experience much of that here. Maybe some scoffing, maybe some ridicule. But around the world, believe me, persecution is on the rise against the church. And even within the broad scope of what carries the label of Christianity, there's, op- there's always opposition and scorn directed upon those who believe the Bible, those Bible-believing Christians. Tolerance is extended to other religions, but not to evangelical Christians. Efforts are often made by government authorities in colleges and universities, sometimes in elementary and high schools, to get Christianity out of any kind of club or practice or activity within the school. Prayers in public places are made, that are made in the name of Jesus are forbidden. You can pray to a nondescript higher power. You can pray to an impersonal cosmic deity. You can pray to a generic supreme being, but you dare not pray to Jesus and in the name of Jesus. In the religion of I, tradition takes priority over the word of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Paul as a Pharisee was filled with zeal. He was passionate about his beliefs. He was fully convinced that he was honoring God by persecuting the church. He was very sincere, but very wrong. And don't accept the line that if you're sincere in your religious belief, that's okay with God. That's not okay with God. Not if you reject the gospel. Zeal is wonderful if it's zeal for Jesus and zeal for the truth. 
Some professing Christians are more zealous for the traditions of a certain denomination than they are for biblical truth. So whatever church we attend, this church or any other church, the church, and I'll say more about this in a few minutes, is always under the authority of the gospel, always under the authority of the teachings of the Bible. Because the beliefs and dogmas of a church may be quite different from the teachings of the Bible. And it's imperative that we have a discerning spirit here. The gospel is revealed by God and received by faith. Paul uh, continues to tell his personal story in verses uh, 15 to 17. He says something very important in verse uh, 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, before I was born, and called me by his grace. When it comes to salvation, God always initiates, always. The determining factor in salvation is not our decision, it's God's decision. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. Paul's call to salvation and his call to ministry occurred prior to his birth. It occurred prior to time. And that's true of each of us. Man does not simply one day decide to believe. How can he? He's dead in trespasses and sin. There has to be a divine, supernatural work of grace to bring life out of deadness. And when the life is given, when the born-again moment occurs, that is when faith is exercised on the part of the believer. Josh Moody says, the faith of God is that faith which begins with God and that God begins. God comes first. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. In the high priestly prayer of Christ in Romans chapter, (laughs) John chapter 17, several times Jesus says in that prayer, he thanks God the Father for those given given to him and those given to him would believe in him why has God chosen this method of saving sinners why is salvation not a matter of self-determination why is it not the initiation of man's will that leads to salvation? Why is it always the work of God prior to the trust? Well, here's the reason. 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now listen, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. So that, reason, purpose, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is always first. God is the one who saves us. Paul, in contemporary language, was blown away by the grace of God. When he set out to Damascus, and remember, he he requested permission to go to Damascus and persecute the church. Let me go there, arrest people, bring them back to Jerusalem, and you do with them what you want to do with them. But we've got to stop this movement that's proclaiming Christ. When Paul began that day to go to Damascus, he had no inkling that at the end of the day he would be a believer. None. God intervened. Now, agree, his salvation was more dramatic than most of ours. One thing is in common. It was our salvation is no less a miracle than the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. And Jesus, speaking from heaven, said to Ananias in Acts 9, and Ananias didn't quite appreciate the message, you go to a certain place, and there you'll find Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias says, I've heard about this guy. I want nothing to do with him. Saul of Tarsus? And Jesus said, he's become a believer. He's one of mine now. He is a chosen vessel, a chosen vessel. Election. It's all through the Bible. Rather than disturb us, it ought to thrill us. Rather than get upset about it, as I used to, we ought to be so thankful for it. It's the only reason you are saved. is because you were chosen. And God worked his life in you and brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of grace. Paul's salvation, your salvation, my salvation. Again, we see in verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. God takes the initiative. Paul did not deserve such revelation. He did not qualify for it. God just did it. And for what purpose? Verse 16, in order that, whenever you see in order or for, there's a purpose, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul had a special calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. We're not called to be apostles, and we're not called to be an apostle to the Gentiles in that sense of the apostle Paul, but we are called and chosen to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And finally, the authority is not in a person, it's not in the church, what's in the gospel revealed in scripture. In the remainder of Galatians 1, you've had that read in your presence, personal information about what Paul did following he, his salvation. What he did not do, he did not go to Jerusalem, by the way, and talk to Peter, and talk to James, and talk to John, and says, guys, do I have it right? Is this what I'm supposed to preach? Give me some instruction. He didn't do that. He didn't go there see them until years later. He did not need the approval of the apostles, even though he was the new kid on the block in terms of apostolic ministry. When the other leaders heard what he was preaching, they gave 100% endorsement to his message. 
My point here, here is that our authority is never in the church. Never, never, never. It's not in Pastor Dan. It's not in Pastor Wayne. Our authority is in the gospel, in the word of God. So the church should never attempt to change the gospel. We should not soften the gospel to make it more palatable. We should not try to reinvent it so it's uh, not as disturbing to the modern mind as it might be. We must never market the gospel as 10 ways to feel good about yourself and live a successful life. That's not the gospel. Even worse, how to become healthy and how to become wealthy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about Christ, about his deity, his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross. That's the only way for any of us to be saved. So it's important that you judge everything taught in this church by this book. That's why Dan and I are committed to expository preaching. We open the Bible and we try to explain the text. The odd topical sermon, and I think I might preach one next Sunday, is okay, as long as it is consistent with the scriptures. But whether it's a Sunday school class or care group or ladies' time out or men's ministry, take your Bibles and check it out. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, the last two verses, verses 23 and 24, Paul's referring to those who had heard about his message but hadn't seen him yet. They are only hearing, they, were only, they only were hearing it, quote, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. You can imagine the amazement. This guy was a persecutor. We know Saul of Tarsus. Word got around. When Saul was on the move, you got lost. Now he's a preacher. From being willing to kill Christians, he's more than willing to be killed as a Christian. Let me ask you as we close, who or what is your ultimate authority? For many in our culture, it's their feelings, it's their emotions. They're driven by their passions and desires. That's disastrous. For a lot of people who are religious, it's the church. If the church pronounces, if the church declares, if the church makes a statement, to them that's the truth. And I say, ooh, be careful there. Check it out biblically. To others, it's just their own personal opinions. This is the way I think. This is the right way to think. Period. No higher standard, no accountability, just my mind. As Christians, those of us who profess faith in Christ, we believe the Bible, and we are to be in it every day in some way for some amount of time, and we make tons of decisions. You and I made a whole lot of decisions last week about a lot of areas in life. Marriage, finances, work, whatever. Did we have in our minds biblical principles? Were we, th we were thinking divine truth? 
as we made those decisions. That's the way a Christian ought to live. I have one final question. Have you believed the gospel? I'm not asking if you believe that there's a God. A lot of people believe there is a God who don't believe the gospel. I'm not asking you if you're a very religious people, very committed to a local church. I'm not asking you that. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized or confirmed or take the communion. There's a place for the baptism and the communion, a very definite place in the life of the church. Neither one saves us. I'm asking, have you believed the gospel? That you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. You cannot be close to good enough to merit heaven, not even close. Because you need a righteousness which is perfect. Who has that? One person, Jesus. And when you believe in him, God looks at you through the righteousness of his son. Not your performance, not your virtue, but through Jesus Christ. And so your security is not in, have I tried hard enough to be good to go to heaven? Your security is Jesus did it all. And I believe in him and I trust in him as my Savior. If you have not done that yet, I urge you to do it. Right now where you sit, talk to a friend, talk to Pastor Dan or me, and make sure that your security and your hope is in the gospel. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have been so gracious in giving us the scriptures and again on this remembrance week as we remember the great sacrifices of so many people for our freedom and liberty. What a privilege to be in a country that lets us have churches There are places around the world where churches are being burned. There are places this week where Christians were killed and churches burned because they're Christians. That hasn't happened here yet. It could, but it hasn't, and we give you thanks for that. And thank you, God, for your grace in Jesus Christ. Lead us by your Spirit to accept the salvation that's found in only one person, our precious Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.